Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders, Counter Offer, and Subliminal SF. It's 8 o'clock. It's Friday night. It's... Welcome to last year's The Weekly Review from this week. One year ago today, Roman Reimer recorded the following podcast. Sadly, he cannot be here with you today, but Mutiny Radio is playing last year's December 27th Weekly Review. So let's find out on this show what happened last year. And in the new year, Roman Reimer will be back bringing you all the news that you need to know. All right, everybody, enjoy this Friday's last year's Friday's weekly review with Roman Reimer. Watch out, please! 
open your hearts and your purses to a man who is misunderstood. He gets all the kicks and the curses, though he wishes you nothing but good. Well, he wistfully begs you to show him. You think he's a friend, not a louse. So remember the debt that you owe him, the landlord who lends you his house. So pity the downtrodden landlord and his back that is burdened and bent. Respect his gray hairs. Don't ask for repairs, and don't be behind with the rent. Now you're able to work for a living and rejoice in your strength and your skill. So try to be kind and forgiving to a man whom a day's work would kill. You can work and still talk to your neighbor. You can look the whole world in the face, but the landlord who ventured to labor would never survive the disgrace. So pity the downtrodden landlord and his back that is burdened and bent. Respect his gray hairs. Don't ask for repairs, and don't be behind with the rent. Now, when a landlord resorts to eviction, don't think that he does it for spite. He is acting from deepest conviction, and what's right, after all, is what's right. But I see that your hearts are all hardened, and I fear I'm appealing in vain. Yet I hope my last plea will be pardoned if I beg on my knees once again. Pity the downtrodden landlord and his back that is burdened and bent. Respect his gray hairs. Don't ask for repairs, and don't be behind with the rent. And welcome to the weekly review. That was Fred Hellerman with "Pity the Downtrodden Landlord," and that song came about in 1950. And here we are, many years later. 70 years later and yep song is still true here we go the song before that was a song by the band testament which i hadn't i'd heard of them but didn't know too much about them and that song was called practice what you preach which is a good thing of course to consider also they're from berkeley i did not know that so that was cool also the guitarist his father uh, was a, a professor and was very critical of police so even better great good things oh it's the last show of the year 2017 we've we've made it i guess there's a few more days to go it's been very brutal for many people and didn't really have anything special planned just the fact that i think showing up is there we go didn't have to do it and decided why not perhaps it'll make me feel better and it is does feel better to be here to play some music for everybody we'll go over some stories that are probably a little bit depressing maybe some inspiring ones i haven't decided yet what things to talk about. If you can tell from my voice, I'm a little bit under the weather um, coming out of it, though. A lot of folks are under the weather, though. So that's all right. I'm able to get here. Grateful for that. It's uh, sunny, sunny skies here in San Francisco. Ugh. It has been quite a week. It's been a year. It's always interesting to look back. I don't necessarily, I mean, what is time anyway? We're told it's this certain how we measure it, it, it sometimes seems abstract and bizarre 
to what actually happens and how we measure it. And of course, the older we get, the faster it goes. And it's one one measurement of, of life is, is time. And what does that actually mean? Well, I'm not here to be a philosopher. However, I think it's also just important to think about, okay, what... Uh, and also recognizing that th- this year was the summation of what happened previous years. Like, this is what... This is why we got here. It's not like it came from out of nowhere. And I think that to look at years in, in terms of isolation without relation to what happened before is criminal. People are still making horrific... Uh, I'm just like, what world are we live? Uh, I feel... I know, I know a lot of folks also identify where it's everything seems backwards. Like, so many things seem backwards that there are, I think, 18 million homeless folks in the U.S. And... Th- uh, no, excuse me. Three million, I correct myself, there's three million homeless people in the U.S. and 18 million uh, buildings that are unused or residences. So it's that kind of thing where there are there are fewer people than buildings that are that could be occupied, and yet people are not allowed to live in buildings. Or people are allowed to, but certain people will make it their mission to make sure that doesn't happen or to charge people exorbitant amounts of rent. And it's the very it's the very basic thing where if you can't get your basic needs met, how can you really survive in this world? <sighs> I mean, that's part of it. That's one thing. And then we got wars, bombings. We have jails, people who are incarcerated who should not be incarcerated. The people who are starting the wars probably should be the ones incarcerated. People making decisions that affect millions and actually billions of people are people who should not be in control of anything. So things seem pretty backwards. Things seem, it's like, what, what's, what's really happening here? People still don't have complete access to health care or control of their own bodies, what they are able to consume. There are some, everything, there's so many bizarre things that are criminalized that should not be criminalized and things that perhaps should be criminalized, like war, which is not. Poverty should be criminalized. The people who put others in, in poverty I hope I, that sounded correct, because poverty, unfortunately, is criminalized here when folks who live on the street get citations and have to move along, which is ridiculous. doesn't make any sense. So people who have the least are the ones who have to pay the most, and the people who have the most can do whatever the fuck they want. So I'm just waiting for, I know where everyone's talking about, like, what, 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 what's it going to take? There are still some people who have their head in the fucking clouds, and they annoy the hell out of me. But I'm wondering what, what does it take, and perhaps I have to be an actor in this, and I have to take action. What will it take for us to like go on with this eating of the rich, or getting the guillotines out, or however one wants to verbalize what has to be done? What's it going to take? Is it going to take one person to say, hey, this, this can be done, and other people will follow? Do we need to have more people on board to do it? I don't know. But what's happening is just getting worse and worse, and things aren't going to change unless people take action and unless people wake up more people need to wake up and also make sacrifices so that's an idea also i'm calling on support from people outside the u.s because it's a shit show here so if folks from outside the u.s want to come in and uh, help us out that would be great because the citizens do not like what's happening here and that will actually bring me into the first article there's a nice segue that was unplanned that we can do so in Iran, folks are protesting against the government. And this is a, a worldwide thing, of course, that 
uh, governments are just pretty pretty awful for the most part, and do not seek to help people. It's it's almost the opposite. So. There's an article on the BBC, and of course I want to be critical of, you know, where do we get these news, where, do, where does this news come from? So, you know, there's that, and then at the same time, uh, wanting to talk about what actually is happening, and hopefully there is some truth in this. So this article comes from the BBC News, and it came out three hours ago. And uh, maybe I'll play, if I may, um, some footage and there's a uh, there's some video footage, so you'll only hear the audio. But uh, let's let's see what this sounds like. So that is um, Iran cities hit by anti-government protests, and this came out three hours ago today. Anti-government demonstrations that began in one city on Thursday have now spread to several major cities in Iran. Large numbers reportedly turned out in Rasht, um, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh, these names, in the north, uh, Kermanshah in the west, with smaller protests in Isfahan, Hamadan, and elsewhere. The protests began against raising rising prices, but have spiraled into a general outcry against clerical rule and government policies. Hint, hint, America! A small number of people have been arrested in Tehran, the capital. They were among a group of 50 people who gathered in a city square. Tehran's deputy governor general for security affairs told the Iranian labor news agency, the governor general of Tehran later said that any such gatherings would be firmly dealt with by poli- by the police who are out in force on main intersections. The, an initial BBC report of a demonstration in a southern city of Shiraz was not confirmed. The demonstrations are the most serious and widespread expression of public discontent in Iran since protests in 2009 that followed a disputed election, correspondents say. Demonstrators were reportedly heard yelling slogans including, the people are begging, the clerics act like God. Protests have been held in Qom, a holy city home to powerful clerics. The biggest protest on Thursday was in the northeastern city of Mashhad, where there were 52 arrests. There have been calls on social media for protests up and down the country, despite warnings from the government against illegal gatherings. Videos posted on social media purport to show clashes between security forces and some demonstrators in Kermanshah on Friday. The protests on Thursday started with anger at the inability of the government of President Hassan Rouhani to control prices. The cost of eggs has doubled in a week. However, some developed into broader anti-government protests, calling for the release of political prisoners and an end to police beatings. Does that sound familiar? There are also chants in Mashhad of Not Gaza, Not Lebanon, My Life for Iran, a reference to what protesters say is the administration's focus on foreign policy rather than domestic issues. The arrests in Mashhad were for chanting harsh slogans, officials said.
The demonstrations have taken the Iranian authorities by surprise. Impromptu anti-government demonstrations are rare in a country where the Revolutionary Guard and numerous intelligence agencies have a strong grip on the population. Predictably, they are blaming anti-revolutionary elements and foreign agents. But the protests clearly stem from seething discontent in Iran, mainly because of the worsening economic conditions faced by ordinary Iran Iranians. A BBC Persian investigation has found that Iranians, on average, have become 15% poorer in the past 10 years alone. Many believe that money that should be used to improve their lives is being spent by Iran's leaders on conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. Billions are also spent on spreading religious propaganda and Shia Islam around the world. But it seems that the hardliners opposed to President Rouhani may have triggered the unrest by holding a demonstration that quickly grew out of control and spread to cities and towns across the country. The head of Mashhad's revolutionary court, Hussein Haideri, said, We consider protest to be the people's right, but if some people want to abuse these emotions and ride this wave, we won't wait and we will confront them. President Rouhani promised that the deal he signed with world powers in 2015, which saw Iran limit its nuclear activities in return for the lifting of international sanctions, would boost economic growth. The economy has risen out of recession and inflation has been reduced, but businesses are still struggling from a lack of investment and the official unemployment rate is 12.4%. Wow. So you can check that out. Um, at bbc.com and that article came out today I'm going to play some more music and figure out some other stories to share with you all and then we'll be back
welcome back. That was Kenna with Free Time. I haven't heard that song in a while. Really good. Before that was L7 with a live version of Pretend We're Dead. Always good. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of bad things happening in the world. I guess there always have been, and now it's more overt, and I don't know why any of these people are positions of power, and I want to put a general. They have to be stopped. And in an ideal world, they would wake up and be like, oh, what we're doing is wrong. We're going to stop it right now. And if that doesn't happen, then people need to take action. An article from the Washington Blade, which um, came out on December 28th. Um, Trump fires all members of HIV AIDS Council without explanation. Why is he still fucking around? Why, why, is, why do we have to... Why? Seriously. Why is he still here on Earth? Honestly. Question... Why? Putting that out there in the universe. Uh, so the Washington Blade also is a newspaper that's been covering the LGBT community since 1969. With no explanation, the White House has terminated members of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS amid widespread discontent with 45's approach to the epidemic. After six members of PACHA resigned in June, the White House on Wednesday terminated the remaining 16 members without explanation via a letter from FedEx. Scott Schotz, a Chicago-based HIV-AIDS activist and senior attorney for Lambda Legal, was one of the six who resigned in June over Trump's inaction on HIV-AIDS and said on Twitter the remaining members were fired. With no respect for their service, Schotz said, dangerous that Trump and co., Pence especially, are eliminating few remaining people willing to push back against harmful policies like abstinence-only sex ed. And they have a tweet from Scott A. Schotz here. And you can follow Scott on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at pauseadvocate, P-O-Z-A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E. Sources with knowledge of Pacha said many council members were fired, even though additional time remained on their terms as advisors. The terminated members, sources said, were given the option to reapply after Tuesday. Gabriel Maldonado, CEO of the Riverside, California-based LGBT and HIV-AIDS group True Revolution, was a remaining member of Pacha and confirmed that they were fired, but said the explanation is still unclear. I can only speculate, Maldonado said. Like any administration, they want their own people there. Many of us were Obama appointees. I was an Obama appointee, and my term was continuing until 2018. Maldonado said ideological and philosophical differences with the administration are a potential reason for the terminations. As an example, Maldonado cited a recent Washington Post report for the Centers for Disease Control is banned from using words like diversity and transgender in budget documents. The CDC director has denied those words are banned. I was a co-chair of the Disparities Committee. So much of my advocacy and policy references surrounded vulnerable populations addressing issue addressing issuing of diverse communities, specifically looking at the impacts of the LGBT community, namely the disproportionate impact of HIV and AIDS to people of color, gay men, transgender women, Maldonado said. And a lot of those key vulnerable populations are not being prioritized in this administration. Maldonado added he intends to publish an open letter to the community about his termination on Friday. Also among the terminated members was Patrick Sullivan, a professor of epidemiology. 
um, at the Emory University Rollins School of Public Health. My reaction is that our focus should be on the policies that Pasha addresses, Sullivan said. These issues are critical to people's health and are critical to making new HIV infections rare. At Pasha's last meeting in August, the council urged the administration to affirm the national HIV AIDS strategy through 2020. Doing this would be a great way for the administration to set the tone and lay out national roadmap of priorities for the new PACHA. Created in 1995, PACHA, again, which is P-A-C-H-A, has provided advice starting in the Clinton administration and into the George W. Bush and Obama administrations on policy and research to promote effective treatment and prevention for HIV, maintaining the goal of finding a cure. In September, Trump signed an executive order that renewed PACHA, along with 31 other presidential bodies uh, for an additional year. Trump's termination of council members isn't the first time an administration cleaned a house on PACHA. The Obama administration eliminated all of George W. Bush's appointees before making new appointments. Kay Hayes, executive director of PACHA, affirmed the council members were terminated on Wednesday, but said there's more to the story. They were also thanked for their leadership, dedication, and commitment to the effort, Hayes said. Changing the makeup of federal advisory committee members is a common occurrence during administration changes. The Obama administration dismissed the George W. Bush administration appointees to PACHA in order to bring in new voices. All PACHA members are eligible to apply to serve on the new council that will be convened in 2018. Jim Driscoll, a gay Nevada-based HIV-AIDS activist who supported Trump in 2016. Fuck you, Jim Driscoll. Excuse me. Ugh, said the replacement of Pacha members is standard practice for the new administration. How can anyone in their fucking right mind support? Okay, whatever. Now they need to find bona fide community people with appropriate ex- expertise, which we all fucking know that they don't because they appoint people who have no fucking experience at all. And the ability to adapt to the changed political circumstances, Driscoll said. It is fully understandable why a president would not want people who, who oppose his policies might be happy to see him impeached serving as his HIV advisors. That would serve the needs of neither the president nor the people, nor of people living with HIV/AIDS. But Maldonado said the termination of Pacha members during the Trump administration is only partially consistent with the Obama years. It is common for appointees to be terminated and for folks to kind of want their own people in. Maldonado said, "I think where the discrepancy comes in is why a year later, no one, no one, too many of us." Uh, our terms were over earlier this year, and we were sworn back in. And three were swayed, three were stayed on nearly four months after an executive order was signed continuing the council. In June, six, mem- six members of the Pacha resigned the posts in protest over what they called inaction from Trump on the global HIV/AIDS epidemic. An estimated 1.2 million people have HIV/AIDS in the United States, and 37 million have the disease worldwide. Chief among the reasons was the absence of leadership at the White House on HIV-AIDS. To the state, the White House has yet to appoint a director of the Office of National AIDS Policy, which was one of the reasons the six members of PACHA resigned in June. Trump's fiscal year 2018 budget proposal also sought massive cuts to HIV-AIDS programs, including $150 million on HIV-AIDS programs at the Centers of Disease Control and more than $1 billion in cuts from global programs like PEPFAR, Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. The Republican-controlled Congress has thus far continued to fund these programs at previous levels. 
Maldonado noted that the Pacha terminations are taking place at the year's end after the June resignations, which he said is a little too coincidental. The timing is a little bit unorthodox compared to what the Obama administration's approach was, Maldonado said. Maldonado said he represented a younger demographic on Pacha as the only member under the age of 30, which he said is where the majority of new HIV infections are occurring as a young black gay man. I just am coming to the acknowledgement that the traditional tactics of politicking and policy and strategy and negotiation, the kind of standard tools that we're trying to use, that the status quo is no longer acceptable, Maldonado said. The tactics that we had are kind of obsolete, and now we need to craft a new strategy to address the troubling and unsettling revelations, particularly around the silence and inaction that have taken place around HIV and AIDS. Since the resignations in June, Trump has made public statements on HIV-AIDS consisting of proclamations on National HIV Testing Day and World AIDS Day. Neither statement includes an explicit mention of LGBT people who are considered to face the brunt of the disease. The White House deferred comment to the Department of Health and Human Services, which provided the statement from the Pacha executive director. New appointments may be coming soon. The Blade reported in October, gay Republicans familiar with HIV-AIDS issues and LGBT issues have been among those contacted by the Trump administration official for possible appointments to Pacha. So gross. Okay, so then the author of the article is Chris Johnson. So again, you can find this article at WashingtonBlade.com, written by Chris Johnson. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Gross. Ugh. So gross. How about some good music to... um to kind of get us out of this headspace. Okay, good idea.
this makes me feel better. I hope it makes you feel better, too. Perhaps in my next life, I'll just be a radio DJ who plays music and doesn't talk about current events at all, so I scream less, and perhaps my mental health is a little bit better. However, I feel if I ignore it, that's not good for my mental health either. So that's that's where we're at. That was Broken Social Scene with 7-4 Shoreline. And before that, Mission of Burma with That's When I Reach for My Revolver. Mmm, good song. Folks might also be familiar with the Moby cover of that song. Coming up next, boycotts. Boycotts are great. It's There's many ways, diversity of tactics we talk about, lots of ways to make a difference. So if you yourself do not have a revolver and want to stick it to the, the Koch brothers, one thing you can do is you can boycott them. They own a lot of things, and one thing you can do is not buy their products. However, it might be difficult if one doesn't necessarily know the items that they own. So here's here's a list of certain paper products as a start of boycotting Cook paper products. There's a really handy uh, image here. All right, list of Coke paper products. Angel Soft toilet paper, do not buy. This is like the anti-advertisement section of the show. Brawny paper towels, do not buy. Dixie, do not buy. Mardi Gras napkins and towels, do not buy. Quilted northern toilet paper, do not buy. Soft and gentle toilet paper, do not buy. Sparkle napkins, do not buy. Vanity Fair napkins, do not buy. And Z, as in Z-E-E, napkins, do not buy. So there's a list of items that uh, don't you shouldn't buy. You can't buy. And I recognize that it's difficult if there's not a lot of options and if they kind of they're kind of everywhere if they take over the market it's hard however if you have the option to not support any of those by any of those products by all means don't do it that's one way we can we can get them is to not give them our money um stealing them i totally cool with i condone that if you want to you know by all means However, don't don't give the Koch brothers any money. Okay. Next up is uh ugh. okay. It's a positive news article. It's from the Chronicle, SF Chronicle, which is like not the best newspaper uh, politically. However, there are some positive things happening, and I did say that there might be some positive news stories. Now, I'm very much for folks who want to change things from the outside of the system, I think that's been more effective and more powerful. And I also support people who want to change things from the inside and kind of take it down and change it that way. And I think all ways that we can change things, the better. So I do want to support folks, whatever. We all have, you know, different abilities and the ways we can, like, make change. So for folks who want to go inside the system and change it that way, by all means. And this is kind of what this article is about. So from the SF Chronicle, uh, the uh, author... Of uh, the article is Bob Egelko, and this came out on December 24th. Um, five of six candidates for California governor oppose the death penalty. Cool. As the death penalty has gradually lost its once overwhelming public support, it may have also lost its effectiveness as a wedge issue among office seekers, as evidence of that is in the race for governor of California in 2018. 
of the six major party candidates for governor, five, all four Democrats and one of two Republicans, say they are against the death penalty, a position in line with just under half the state's voters, based on recent election results, and current governor Jerry Brown. But as California, which has last which last executed an inmate in January 2006, faces a possible flood of executions as the result of a voter-approved initiative and court rulings, only one candidate, Democrat Delane Easton, the former state school superintendent, has shown any inclination to commute death sentences to life in prison without parole. Easton, in response to questions submitted by the Chronicle to all the candidates, said she doesn't think the death penalty deters crime, and also said it has been used in a racially biased way and may result in executions of the innocent. She promised to carefully consider all all requests for clemency, a statement that her campaign manager, Jennifer Rindall, later described as an indication that she would lean toward clemency. Two other candidates, Democrats, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom uh, and former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio uh, Villar... Villaragosa gave reasons similar to Easton's for opposing the death penalty, while a third Democratic state treasurer, John Chang, cited his Roman Catholic faith. Okay. All three said they would consider commutations case by case, but did not indicate any tilt toward clemency. Luis Vizcaino, a spokesman for Villaragosa, specified that the former mayor in reviewing such cases would work to ensure that due process is followed under the law because there is no room for error. Republican John Cox, that is his name, John Cox, a San Diego County businessman, conservative activist, and former radio talk show host, said he opposes capital punishment, there we go, as a Catholic and fiscal conservative. So even even the folks who we may disagree with are we agree with about these things. Uh, he said that life without parole is a fitting punishment for murder and costs much less than the death penalty system. But as governor, Cox would not interfere with a lawfully passed and administered death penalty statute or sentence. Okay. Said spokesman Matt Shoup. The only major party candidate to support the death penalty is Assemblyman Travis Allen, Republican, surprise, from Huntington Beach, Orange County who said it was absolutely necessary in cases where heinous crimes have been committed. If that's the case, I think the current administration should, that's what they should get. Okay. He said he would deny um, commutation to any condemned inmate who had been rightfully convicted and sentenced. The candidate's responses reflect a shift in public attitudes on capital punishment, said Robert Dunham, executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. This could not have happened 20 years ago when a nationwide Gallup poll showed support for the death penalty around 80%, Dunham said. The same poll conducted in October showed 55% support, a 45-year low, he said, and the figure is probably even lower in California. The National Democratic Party platform, adopted at last year's national convention, called for the death penalty to be abolished for the first time since 1972. California's Democratic Party has taken the same stance since 2010. Among Republicans nationwide, Dunham said, polls show that support for the death penalty has declined substantially, though it's still over 70%. The death penalty is losing its status as a wedge issue because it is far less partisan than it used to be, Dunham said. He said majorities in recent polls have declared they would support a candidate of their own party even if they disagreed with the candidate's position on capital punishment. 
It has been a pivotal issue at times in the past. Republican George Dukmijian's sponsorship of death penalty legislation was instrumental to his election as attorney general in 1978 and as governor in 1982 and 1986. Also in 1986, Chief Justice Rose Byrd and the state Supreme Court colleagues Cruz Reynoso and Joseph Grodin were denied new terms by the voters for the first time in a half century of such elections after a campaign that focused on the reversals of death sentences. Mm. But Brown, who appointed all three justices, has avoided any voter retribution for his opposition to the death penalty. After vetoing Duke Michigan's death penalty bill in 1977, a veto that the legislature overrode, Brown was easily reelected as governor in 1978 on the same day that the voters overwhelmingly approved an initiative to expand the death penalty law. He has downplayed the issue in his recent terms as governor, staying noticeably, noticeably silent during campaigns in 2012 and 2016 on ballot measures, both narrowly defeated, to repeal the death penalty in California. But Brown has never had to decide whether to commute a death sentence, though it seems likely that he and his successor in 2019 will be faced with those life or death decisions. Proposition 66, approved by 51% majority in November 2016, was aimed at resuming and speeding up executions. Ugh, gross. The state Supreme Court rejected its most far-reaching provision, which would have required the court to decide all death penalty appeals within five years of sentencing, but it upheld most of the measure, new limits on appeals, requirements for additional lawyers to take capital cases, and final state approval of new procedures for single-drug executions. That leaves the fate of 21 California prisoners who have lost all appeals of their death sentences in the hands of U.S. District Judge Richard Seaborg of San Francisco. The state's lethal injection procedures have been blocked by the court since 2006, when another federal judge ruled that flaws in the procedures, staff training, and the death chamber itself created an unacceptable risk of a prolonged and agonizing execution. But Seaborg's review of the prolonged of the proposed single drug executions must follow standards set by the U.S. Supreme Court. The court has rejected a series of challenges to other states' use of execution drugs that they were untested, were unapproved by federal agencies, and had left inmates gasping in an apparent pain while they died, and said inmates must accept the state's methods unless they propose less painful methods. If California's new procedures survive court review, the final decision will be up to the governor, who would need approval from a majority of the seven-member state Supreme Court before commuting a death sentence. The last California governor to issue a commutation was Ronald Reagan, who reduced Calvin Thomas's sentence to life in prison in 1967 based on new evidence that Thomas had suffered from organic brain damage. Reagan supported the death penalty. Brown and most of his would-be successors oppose it. That prospect doesn't phase Kent Scheidegger, uh, one of the authors of Prop 66 and an architect of the lawsuit that forced Brown's administration to come up with the new execution procedures. Just because someone's personality, just because someone's personally against it doesn't mean that they won't enforce it, said Scheidegger, legal director of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation. When Brown first ran for governor, that was his position. We're going to try to give him that opportunity. All right. And then they have a list here of all the folks who are running. And they have also, they have like the list of the major um, folks who are running. And there's also someone else who was not mentioned in the article who's also running on the Green Party ticket, who we should support. And that's Veronica Fimbres. And um, wanting to support Veronica 
And so perhaps we'll talk more about that as the election comes up, but she's awesome. So just putting that out there that there are folks who are running that are not listed in that article and wanting to give them their, ah, yes, giving them their time. I apologize. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, as I mentioned earlier, and that's kind of, I feel like it's coming across and also just the, ugh, my feelings about everything right now are just, ugh, there's a lot. There's a lot of just feeling so angry about what's happening and like how things have been getting worse and how difficult it is and knowing so many people who are having a really tough time right now for a number of reasons and it's just so infuriating. I'm going to play some music and then we'll be back. I have a positive news story. And again, these news stories are just kind of like the positive ones are when something bad is prevented from happening or something that's bad that has been happening is stopped. So uh, this one kind of just goes out to, this is one of my favorite songs because if we don't do something now, the next generations are going to have it even worse.
sensations make me feel the pleasures of a normal man. These sensations fare the answers, leave them for another day. I've got the spirit, lose the feeling, take the shuffle away. me up like joy division that was disorder and before that uh, if you tolerate this your children will be next by manic street preachers very true it's true i mean if we don't make change now the next generation's going to have to go through the same thing if not worse so let's do what we can okay and i recognize the folks listening to the show are probably already the ones doing the doing the work so another maybe manifesting this saying this out loud putting it out into the universe that folks who are not engaging will begin to engage and we can take back the world together. Maybe that's a bit too optimistic and naive. I'll rather waste a few seconds and say it and be wrong than not say it at all. So here's a positive news story. <laughs> this is what this is what qualifies as as positive in on this show. Illinois to ban the gay panic defense in the new year. <laughs> Yay, 2018. Ugh, great. Okay, so this is from NPR, and this came out on December 28th. This was written by Richard Gonzalez. Uh, On Monday, Illinois will become the second state... (laughs) 
only the second okay okay that's good better better second than than okay okay on Monday, Illinois will become the second state to ban the so-called gay panic defense in cases in which a murderer, a defendant, tries to justify his violence as a reaction to learning that the victim was gay. California banned the defense tactic in 2014, a year after the American Bar Association called for its prohibition. As the Associated Press reports, there is no single standard for the circumstances leading to the defense. There are variations, but it generally goes like this. A person doesn't realize someone is gay or transgender and engages in a flirtation, then discovers that person's sexual orientation, and that discovery triggers a passionate, involuntary response such as murder. Activists for LGBTQ rights often point to the 1998 case of Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old college student who was beaten to death by two men, one of whom claimed the victim had made sexual advances toward him. The activists say they hope the law, which was approved by Illinois lawmakers in May and signed by Governor Bruce Rauner in August, will provide momentum toward passing similar measures in other states. This new law ensures LGBTQ people are not blamed for the violence perpetrated against them simply because of who they are, Brian C. Johnson, CEO of Equality Illinois, said in a statement shortly after Rauner signed the law. The AP adds, supporters plan to revive legislature attempts to ban what's also known as the trans defense, excuse me, trans panic defense in state houses in Washington and New Jersey, where proposals haven't yet received committee votes. Advocates also hope to make inroads in New York, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, and Texas. According to a study by the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law, gay panic and trans panic defenses have been used in courts in about half of the states in the U.S., even though no state penal code recognizes it as a freestanding defense. Some opponents of the ban say that it's that the gay panic defense is rarely used and is not a reliable defense argument. One critic, Cynthia Lee, a law professor at George Washington University Law School, says the ban may have an unintended consequence. Open discussion of pernicious ideas is a better way to deal with such ideas than banning such discussion outright. Along the same lines, banning gay panic arguments from the criminal courtroom is not a good idea because this simply allows bias against homosexuality to fester in the subconscious realm. Open discussion about whether it is reasonable for a heterosexual man to respond to a nonviolent homosexual advance with fatal physical violence is a better way to ensure that such bias is mediated by cognitive processes. Wow. And as someone had pointed out online, you know, if if all women were to, you know, rage against all the men who, you know, hit on them, uh, you know, gave them unwanted attention, there would be like a pile of men's bodies lining the streets. So it's just the it's the the pa- the quote unquote panic that men have. If it's just ridiculous. Okay. <sighs> okay, but that's a positive news story. I forgot I should be happy about this. That there's even though there's I mean I do see both sides to it and also yeah. Okay. So here's a here's an article from RT and I've heard that like RT is not the best news story. It's frustrating. However, I really want to read this article cuz I feel like it's um just a good article to to share like the ideas of what's happening here. So, Israeli teens tell Netanyahu they won't serve in IDF slam occupation of Palestine, and this came out on December 29th. Uh, 63 Israeli students signed a letter stating they would defy mandatory military service despite the risk of jail. Citing the occupation of Palestine, the letter criticizes the policies of Israel's racist government. The letter, signed on Thursday by 63 high school students from across Israel, is addressed to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman, Education Net, uh, Minister... 
Naftali Bennett and Israel Defense Forces IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Gadi Eisenkot. Pointing to Israel's blockade on the Gaza Strip and illegal West Bank settlements, the letter states that the army implements the policy of a racist government that violates basic human rights, which applies one law to Israelis and another to Palestinians in the same area. Blaming the Israeli government and IDF for decades of violent conflict, the students wrote they decided not to take part in the occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people, which separates people into two hostile camps, because as long as people live under occupation, that denies them human rights and national rights we will not be able to achieve peace. The signatories also said that Israelis are exposed to a culture of militarism from a young age and that they want to change the entire system. Yes, yes. The IDF has not formally responded to the letter, but Yesh Atid M.K. Alazar Stern, a retired IDF major general, called the letter sad but marginal. Ugh, I think our youth is committed enough to handle these marginal types. So gross. It's minuscule compared to the hundreds of thousands who enlist and isn't more than the number of draft dodgers in the past, Stern said. All Jewish, Jews and Circassian Israeli citizens are over 18 are expected to serve in the IDF. However, Israel's Arab minority is exempt from mandatory service. Men serve two years and eight months and women for two years. And that in itself... <sighs> Although such cases are rare, the IDF has previously jailed young conscious objectors, conscientious objectors who have refused to serve. In July, 19-year-old Noah Gergolan was detained in a military prison for defying her draft orders. In an open letter she wrote before refusing to enlist, Golan said she would not be complicit in a reality where violence is the norm. In a similar incident in 2014, 53 graduates of Jerusalem's Arts and Science Academy signed a letter declaring their refusal to serve in the military. The alumni of the prestigious university wrote that the IDF was a contractor in active segregation based on the concept of ethnic superiority of the Jews over Palestinians, a regime that oppresses and tramples basic human rights, which applies a different legal system to a different population's to the different populations in the West Bank and uses a system of discrimination based on ethnic lines from 1948. The United Nations has repeatedly called on Israel to withdraw from occupied Palestinian territory. In March, the UN's Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, ESCWA, published a report accusing Israel, beyond a reasonable doubt, of being guilty of policies and practices that constitute the crime of apartheid against Palestinian against the Palestinian people. Yep. Oh. So again, you can find that on RT, and it's also... We've also shared that on the Weekly Review webpage, and that is at facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And good for those students and good for folks who decide not to partake in that violence. Um, good, 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 good. Okay, cool. Next up, some more positive action. Okay, this is from It's Going Down, and... I'll probably read maybe a couple articles about this. We'll see. There's another one in the Miami Herald that's about this as well. Florida prisoners set to strike January 15th against prison slavery. And this came out on December 28th. The Jan this January, prisoners in Florida will continue to build on the momentum of nearly two years of uprising and rebellion, launching a statewide strike on January 15th. We had the opportunity to speak with one of the organizers from within a Florida facility. The interview is brief but powerful. And um, I'll read a little bit here. My voice is starting to go. 
And according to Fight Toxic Prisons, these prisoners plan to uh, initiate a work stoppage or lay down beginning Monday, January 15th, coinciding with MLK Day in nonviolent protest of conditions in Florida prisons. They are calling it Operation Push. Their primary demands are clear and concise. End prison slavery. Stop price gauging, gouging. And finally, return parole. They believe these issues have directly created the overcrowding that is responsible for the deplorable conditions in Florida prisons. Their statement also raises other major issues that need to be grappled with, including the death penalty, voting rights, and environmental health conditions. From the communication we have received, these prisoners claim to represent thousands in at least eight facilities already, and they say they are prepared to stay down indefinitely until someone addresses their concerns. Among many grievances, the strike centers on several demands. One, payment for our labor, rather than the current slave arrangement. Two, ending outrageous canteen prices. Three, reintroducing parole incentives to lifers and those with Buck Rogers dates. In our engagements with prisoners, it is important to remember that their self-determination and approaches to resistance may not always mirror our own on the outside our conversation below they have the conversation included a question about previous uprisings in the florida prisons and the answer may not reflect our own ideas about what it what is or is not the best approach to resistance at the end of the day we're on the outside and they're on the inside it is best for the people within the prison walls to determine how best to approach liberation and it is for us to find ways of supporting them find looking for where our struggles for liberation intersect uh please support Fight Toxic Prisons and spreading the word about Operation Push and you can donate. They have the page here. It's a YouCaring site of Operation Push on YouCaring. And they said they're extremely excited to continue to share interviews with people from the outside prisons. And so then they have the um, the back and forth of the interview and um, I want to do it justice. So I'm going to it's going to be difficult for me to read it. So I'm going to ask for folks, if you would like to read this, please check out itsgoingdown.org and you can check out the article in full. Florida prisoners set to strike January 15th. Uh, so, and you can also, they also have um, addresses and names where you can write to people. And also there's a, a, a book um, by Kelly Little, uh, Little Hernandez, um, called City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And there's an interview with Kelly on Rust Belt Abolition Radio, so folks can check that out. There's a lot of information out there, and perhaps that's like a, a, a hopeful thing is that there's so many people out there doing the work and documenting what's happening and talking to folks, and it's, there's so many things to be combating right now, and there's a lot of folks who are, who are doing just that, so I wanted to support that and give that a voice. Okay. Um, so there's another article from the Miami Herald that talks about uh, Operation Push as well and this was written by Monique O. Madan and this came out on December 28th inmates across eight floors okay we've already established this I'm going to see if there's any more added information the fact that like mainstream media has also picked up on this as well I think is great and um, over the past two years at the end of the article they say the Miami Herald has published a series of stories documenting the brutal or unexplained deaths of inmates in Florida, excuse me, in Florida prisons, a record number of use of force incidents and corruption by guards and top officers. 
If we show them violence, they will have a legitimate excuse to use brute force against us and explain to the public that they had to use brute force in order to contain the situation, prisoners said in their statement announcing Operation Push. However, their weakness is their wallet. Mm. So again, you can find that the full article with more information at MiamiHerald.com. I'm going to play some music, try to get myself a little bit decongested, and we'll be back um, with some more yeah with some more news after that that's the right word i'm gonna pull up some songs here for folks and i think uh kate bush sounds pretty good to me right now so i'm gonna pull up uh some kate bush here and uh and then we'll be back with some more news i still Sure. 
beside me for this is sacred ground. Speak good things into being. Abundance is all around. Happiness and joy reign down, down. Happiness and joy reign. Happiness and joy reign. Happiness and joy reign. Happiness and joy reign. Happiness and joy rain down, down. Happiness and joy rain down. Okay, that was Conjurer by Monica McIntyre. And before that, we heard Cloud Busting by Kate Bush. Ah, welcome back to the show. And, um, <sighs> yep, it's been a 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 year. It definitely has. Upcoming things because the next year continues. Things continue on. We don't just get to start over. I like, I like the idea. Like, oh, we get to start over next year. However, things continue on, and crimes of the state still continue on, and we have to hold them accountable. One way to do this is to provide court support. So, back in 2013, a woman named Kayla Moore was murdered by the Berkeley Police Department. And the they've been the family has been taking them to the officers to court. So if folks would like to provide support. Um, there has been a date set. It's still uh, to be determined, and I'll read about the update here. However, folks can show up if you're able. And right now it's set for February 1st, and this is at the Philip Burton Federal Building, uh, courtroom sixth and seventeenth floor in San Francisco. And the update from December 29th, which is today, by the way, I didn't say that at the beginning of the show, today is December 29th, 2017. We are still waiting for a new court date to be set. The February 1st date listed here is just a placeholder to get notified when the real date is announced. Text JUSTICE4, that's a number 4, Kayla to 33222 for text alerts. And again, that's JUSTICE, the number 4, Kayla to 33222 for text alerts. Show up this winter tentatively to support... And that's this winter is tentatively, they say. Okay. To support the Moore family in court after over four years of seeking a fraction of accountability from the city of Berkeley and BPD. And you can stay tuned for more details about each day of court. And there's the, if you go to facebook.com slash justice, the number four, Kayla Moore. And you can also check out justice for, for justice, F-O-R, Kayla Moore dot WordPress dot com. So sending much love to the family and all folks who have lost loved ones to police violence. Next up, uh, Morning Ben Bars, the transgender scientist who changed neuroscience. And this was written by Matthew Herper, and this came out, this is in Forbes magazine of all places, December 29th. That's today. That's when this article came out. Ben Bars, a neuroscientist who established the importance of glial cells which compromise, compromise, that's another word on my mind, which comprise nine in 10 brain cells, but had been dismissed as inconsequential, died on December 27th. The cause was pancreatic cancer, according to a statement from the from Stanford University, where he was a professor and where he chaired the Department of Neurobiology until he was diagnosed last April. Now, let's, um, they have a video here, so let's hear what Ben has to say. I think that 
great science starts with curiosity. Because, you know, what? there's no easy problems. And so what keeps you going, right? I mean, it's curiosity. You just have to really wonder what the answer is. And, and I think that drives the creativity and the, you know, the perseverance and uh, hopefully the rigor as well. You know, I think science is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, what is more beautiful than, you know, discovering something that has never been known before? Uh, that's just sort of awe-inspiring. I mean, I, I mean, you know, maybe that's the same experience people get when they go to a museum and say they see a beautiful piece of art. I never get that experience, by the way. I'm art blind, but, but science. I mean, that's just you know, the most amazing experience, you know, those few times in your life when you're, you know, there's some question that you've been working away on and then all of a sudden something new, you know, you figure out is, is it's pretty, uh, that's, that's beauty. I mean, to me, the thing about having a, a terminal disease, is, you know, you, everybody knows they're gonna die at some point, but to me, the thing that's the hardest part is that this amazing time I've been having in science for my whole life just suddenly comes to an end that I can't, you know, there are all these questions I'm curious about and I would be hiring new students. I was about to take five new students and postdocs when I got sick and I just told them all not to come. And, you know, they were going to be doing really interesting things. And it just, you know, it's just a curiosity and you know, it kills my curiosity. I was just curious about certain things and it just, you know, comes to a halt and that's frustrating. To me, that's the most frustrating. I'm not worried really about dying. I mean, everybody's gonna die at some point. I'm old, they've had a great life. But it's kind of, that's the thing I think of, you know, sometimes, ah, damn, you know, I, I'd love to put a person on hepatic encephalopathy right now because I think these A1 reactive astrocytes may be relevant. And I can think of some really great experiments that, you know, somebody could do some pilot experiments and see there's something there, but I, you know, oh, can't do that. <laughs> can't take new people. So that's, that's the frustrating part. So this interview was on July 19th, 2017. Oh, what a sweetheart. Oh, and it's a shame that sometimes we hear about these incredible people when they have passed. I'll read a little bit um, from the article, Morning Ben Bars, the transgender scientist who changed neuroscience. Uh, ben was a remarkable person. He will be remembered as a brilliant scientist who transformed our understanding of glial, excuse me, glial cells and as a tireless advocate who promoted equity and diversity at every turn, said Mark Tessier-Levine, PhD president of Stanford University, in a press release. He was also a beloved mentor to students and trainees, a dear friend to many in our community, and a champion for the fundamental dignity of us all. Bars is remembered for his trailblazing scientific work, but also for the causes he fought for. He was openly and adamantly transsexual and was the first trans person admitted into the National Ac Academies of Science. He was a tireless advocate for women in academia and for his students. Professors often hold on to their students' projects. Barr insisted that they take those projects with them. He was a figure toward whom many whom a great many other scientists felt a strong emotional bond. I found this out last night when I posted a link to Stanford's news release announcing his death on Twitter. He was blown away and was blown away by the dozens of heartfelt responses. Ben was a great, was a, was a giant and will be dearly missed, wrote Mary E. Hatton, the Frederick P. Rose Professor of Neurosciences and Behavior at the Rockefeller University. The Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation added, 
The pipeline of drugs in development for Alzheimer's owes so much to Ben Bars. He was a visionary scientist and generous mentor. My PhD was on glial cell biology, and I referenced Ben extensively, wrote Greg James, a pediatric neurosurgeon in London. He made a major contribution to our understanding that glia are not boring supporting cells, but have a critical symbiotic relationship with neurons. He left us too young. I was lucky, lucky to have Ben Bars on my thesis committee, wrote Egil Sakanavikut. I apologize for the mispronunciation here. A uh, NASA biologist, I'm forever grateful for being challenged and trained to defend my ideas and inspired by his dedication to mentorship and inclusivity in science. Hank Greeley, a Stanford law professor who focuses on biotech issues, wrote several tweets about Barr's life as a transsexual, and also interesting use of the word transsexual here. Okay. Uh, We honor and miss him for his scientific greatness and his human goodness, but his identity and his constant support for trans people and issues were deeply important, and not just to him, Greeley wrote, adding in a second tweet, he was more than open. He was fiery about his identity and about trans opponents. We first met when he emailed me, a law professor, to ask about using, about suing the National Academy's press about an awful book on trans people. No, I said, and he listened. Um, Bars was an amazing speaker. I've included two YouTube videos of him speaking on his posts, the first about science and the second about his experience as a trans man. To me, the thing about having a terminal disease is everybody knows they're going to die at some point, Bars says in the first video. But to me, the hardest part is that incredible time I've been having in science just comes to an end. There's all these questions I'm curious about, and I would be hiring new students and postdocs when I got sick, and I just told them all not to come. Oh, that's sad. (sighs) But grateful for for Ben's work. Oh, oh my. Lots of sighing on the show, of course. So, uh, there's a meme that's up I also wanted to share. It didn't start with gas chambers. It started with politicians playing on the prejudices of a Christian nation. It started with a message of us versus them. It started with intolerance and hate speech. It started with denying basic rights. It started with burning houses of worship. It started with ordinary citizens turning a blind eye. So for the folks out there, the folks in our lives who are not quite aware of what's happening, another trying all that we can do to wake people up, or to if you're aware of what's happening, to do something about it, whether that's talk to people, reach out, find ways to make change, do that. Share resources, absolutely. Okay, I have a more of a positive news story that I'm going to wait till the end of the episode for. It's from Fast Company, and it's at 1.37, so actually, maybe I'll play some music and then I'll get to this article and that will be it. Because um, we're actually pretty, this is like a longish article, I want to be able to read it all and get to everything. And so, yeah, I think we'll probably do that, play a couple songs, play the, play this article, read the article, and then we'll end up the show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Also, a big thank you to the folks who support this show, the people who listen, and the folks who donate. Um, We're trying to raise uh, funds to go to the rental of the space. We're almost there. 
uh, I should probably promote it more. I definitely should promote it more. However, for all the folks who donate on a monthly basis, I cannot tell you how grateful I am. It means the world to me that folks support this work and want to hear more of it and believe in me and believe that what we do is important. I also want to make, have a big thank you. I'm not, I've got some personal stuff happening right now that I'm not putting out there on the universe. So I'll probably, it's hard for me to not say things. However, in the future, I'll probably talk about it more. So I haven't been quite as on top of things as I would like. And I wanted to have a list of all the folks who have been on the show this year. And I've just talked to so many incredible, remarkable people, both on this show and on Heterotopia, which I've been uh, sitting in for on Mondays. And I want to thank all the folks who have come into the studio, who have shared what they're doing and their work. I am just so grateful for for folks and to be inspired. And I think that's one way that we make the change is to work together and to create the world that we want to live in and to support the folks who are doing that work. So big thank you. Big thank you to all, the, all everybody. And I don't want to leave anyone out. So uh, it's that, that rough area. Or I don't want to name some names and not name others. Ah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all the folks who came in on the show, who called in, who came in in person, who shared articles, who inspired me, who continue to inspire me. A big thank you so much. And I get that things are pretty horrible looking <laughs> right now. I don't, I don't deny that they aren't. It's. I also feel like one has to have hope because if not, then what's the point? And you know, if we're gonna go out. We have to go out trying to make the world a better place for everybody, like really everybody. So and thank you to the listeners, everyone. Um, I, I do appreciate feedback. I've gotten feedback from a couple of folks. I really do appreciate the feedback, though. So feel free to contact me if you like what you hear or if you don't like what you hear and any constructive criticism, I'm happy to hear. Um, thanks to all the musicians and the artists out there, the music I played on the show, people out there creating work, especially it's not an easy world to live in. This country is backwards in so many ways and has been for a while. And now it seems like things are getting harder and harder for people. So I want to just offer so much love to everyone out there doing the best they can. Okay. That feels better getting that out. And I haven't really, <laughs> today was one of the, again, one of the shows where I didn't plan too much as to what I was going to say or what was going to happen. And I think it's been okay. So I'm going to end on a, a good article. I'm going to play one song before then, probably. And then we'll, uh, yeah, I'll play one or two songs and then we'll be back in a bit. Here's another song. It's from a while ago by an artist named Patty Rothberg. And it's kind of about how <laughs> the world's kind of falling apart. And sometimes we wear masks and we'll just say that we're fine, even if we don't necessarily feel fine. So here we go. Haven't done a thing today I'm just sitting around Wasting time away And even if I wanted to I can go outside There ain't nothing to do Oh I think I'll write a letter home Telling everybody that I'm happy alone And maybe if I play a big black 
down between my breasts and mine. I don't want no Ivy with Unity before that Patty Rothberg with Inside. All right, final article of the show of the year. Uh, this article came out in September from Fast Company. The end of capitalism is already starting if you know where to look. I thought it's great to end on a positive note, right? Great. So one of America's foremost Marxist econ- economists has never felt so optimistic in his 50-year career. And you can find this article at fastcompany.com. This is written by Eile Anzilotti. These days, Richard Wolff is feeling pretty glad he's stuck around teaching this long. Now in his 70s and lecturing at the New School University and having become, over the course of his nearly 50-year-long professional career, one of America's most prominent Marxist economists, Wolf is used to being fringe. That's no longer a word that can apply to him or to his ideas. Over the summer, inequality experts Jason Hickel and Martin Kirk launched a conversation on this site when they posed the theory that capitalism is at the core of the many crises gripping our world today. To Wolf, that's not news. And also to a lot of us, that's not news. But it is new to him to see the same ideas he has taught for decades being met not with scorn or skepticism, but with genuine interest. 
In 2011, the same year that Occupy Wall Street injected dissatisfaction with the financial system into the American mainstream, Wolf founded Democracy at Work, a nonprofit that advocates for worker cooperatives, a business structure in which the employees own the company and share decision-making power over salaries, schedules, and where profits are directed. If I had to pinpoint right now where the transition away from capitalism is happening in the United States, it's in worker co-ops, Wolf says. Though he's been championing the cause of cooperatives, a radically democratic departure from the top-down capitalist business structure for years, recent certain recent events like the 2008 recession and the presidency of 45, poster boy for corrupt capitalism, have galvanized a distinctly anti-capitalist movement in the U.S., Americans are getting closer and closer to understanding that they live in an economic system that is not working for them and will not work for their kids, Wolf says. Growing awareness that wages have been unable to keep up with inflated costs of living have left younger generations particularly disillusioned with capitalism's ability to support their livelihoods, Wolf says. And with CEOs out-earning employees by sometimes as much as 800 to 1. It makes sense that public interest should be swinging toward a work-placed model that encapsulates shared ownership, consensus-based decision-making, and democratized wages. Admittedly, Wolf acknowledges a small boom in the number of worker-owned cooperatives in the U.S. consecutive years of double-digit growth in co-ops since 2010 have brought the total up to around 350, employing around 5,000 people, and does not exactly scream revolution. But perhaps that's because historical precedents for alternatives to capitalism have conditioned us to expect its end to dramatic, its end to dramatic and cataclysmic. But that might mean we're looking in the wrong places. I don't want people to think in terms of Russia and China, Wolf says. In their pursuit of an alternative, Wolf says, those countries neglected to do the work of transition at the micro scale, instead initiating wide sweeping reforms at the state level and leaving their populations in the lurch. Instead, Wolf says, it's instructive to look to the transition to capitalism and understand that it's smaller waves and shifts in a way things are done that signal true change. Before capitalism emerged in Europe, there was feudalism, a radically different system in which nothing, neither land nor labor, was for sale, and serfs orbited their feudal lord like ribbons tethered to a maypole. Feudalism's inhumanity was different from capitalism's. Instead of being unable to work and earn money to pay for rent and necessities, serfs were dependent on the lords for their livelihoods and their schedules, and for a piece on land upon which to labor. Their stability was contingent on the lord's generosity or lack thereof. Sometimes serfs would get squeezed, Wolf says. Maybe a serf who was permitted to work his own land three days a week was cut down to two, and had to work on the lords the rest of the time, struggling to feed his family. Those serfs would run away. They'd jet off into the forests around the manors, where they'd encounter other runaway serfs. This is the origin of Robin Hood. That group of runaways, who'd cut ties with the feudal system, would establish their own villages, called communes. Without Lord controlling how the, pro- the former serfs used their land and their resources, those free workers set up a system of production and trade in the communes that would eventually evolve into modern capitalism. The image of the transition from feudalism to capitalism was the French Revolution, and that was part of it, Wolf says. But it wasn't the whole story. The actual transition was much slower and not cataclysmic, and found in the, these serfs that ran away and set up something new. 
In the U.S., businesses converting to cooperative works, workplace models are the functional equivalent of those runaway serfs. Around 10 cities across the U.S. have, in recent years, launched initiatives specifically to support the development of worker co-ops, which have been especially beneficial in creating job and wage stability in low-income neighborhoods. Because workers are beholden to themselves and each other, rather than a CEO and a board of directors, the model parts ways with the capitalist structure and advances something that more closely resembles a true democratic system. This is the beginning of the end of capitalism, Wolf says. Whether these experiments, which is what we have to call them at this point, will congeal into a massive social transformation, I don't know. But I do know that massive social transformations have never happened without this stage. This stage may not do it, but change won't happen without it, he adds. These subtle shifts away from capitalism are not just apparent in the development of more co-ops, Wolf says. Over the past year, he's been called in to meet with CEOs at large financial firms who seem to Wolf to be stealing themselves for a dethroning. As CEOs continue to disproportionately out-earn their employees, the call for dismantling of the system has become loud enough that they will seem to have no choice but to pay attention. While it's a flimsy gesture, some have distributed their bonuses to their, their employees. The move toward co-ops and the change in consciousness I've witnessed in workplaces and among my students are the two mechanisms of transformation that are now underway globally, and I like to say it's more of a wish than anything else that it's too late to stop them, Wolf says. And the sheer beauty of this is that nothing fuels this movement more than capitalism's own troubles and the displeasure, disaffection, and anxiety it produces. Of course, the thought currents and little blooms of democratic workplaces are not enough to engineer a new economic system. These developments are happening are all happening outside of the political system. In the White House and in Congress, the presence of big capitalist businesses continues as strong a siever. A strong oops, they messed up okay, as strong as ever. But the fact that local governments like New York City and Austin have launched incubator programs for worker owned cooperatives indicates that they're not incompatible with the current political system. The thing that could transition them to a movement is solid, unified political thought underpinning each new development, each step away from capitalism. It's not enough for all of these workplaces to democratize in isolation or for conversations about the failures of capitalism to happen in a vacuum. If an alternative to capitalism is ever going to scale up, it will need to do so nationally and with political support at the federal level. In the meantime, the democratic ethos of worker co-ops, which is, especially now, what's driving their appeal, can be translated into many other, par many other parts of prevailing of the prevailing economic system. Could it look something like inviting Medicare and Medicaid recipients into the legislating body that decides the future of healthcare in this country? Could it look something like involving women in the legal processes that determines what resources they can access to care for their own bodies? Something like a cooperativized housing and urban development department that brings those people it aims to serve into the process of determining how best to do so? Or what about developing a justice system that relies not on removing people from the formal economy via mass incarceration, but that, emphasize, but that emphasizes cooperative employment and job training at both points of re-entry and pre-incarceration? Kimberly Westcott, associate counsel in the New York-based Community Service Society, a 172-year-old anti-poverty organization, has begun a program through Democracy at Work to teach cooperative work within prisons. 
If the cooperatives that could form inside prisons could function just like those on the outs on the other side, are the walls necessary? Ooh. So again, you can find this article at fastcompany.com. It came out in September. The author's name is Eile Anzilotti. Anzilotti. And the title is The End of Capitalism is Already Starting If You Know Where to Look. So that's some positive news to end the show on. And uh, we'll be back next week. So we'll see everybody then. Or not see. We'll we'll talk to you then. Um, if you'd like to support the show, please do tell a friend, uh, share it online to support Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. We have a Patreon account. If you go to patreon.com slash weekly rev, if you'd like to donate any amount, it'd be greatly appreciated. And thank you all so much for listening and for doing good things. And to end on the song, end of the song. It's the end of the episode. Of swimming uh, through a sea of podcasts. I've played quite a few times before. Are you on a raft without a It's called the Geet. Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good special happy hour prices all night long with your mutiny radio comedy festival ticket march 1st through 5th check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com come take a seat i had a date there and it did not go well but it wasn't the fault of the place they're very nice asiento For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van Ness. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby.
SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a taste of